Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm fine. I've got a question to ask you, which I feel that I'm not just asking on behalf of myself, but I'm asking on behalf of the great British public. Are you the badger on The Masked Singer? I think that's what they call dead air in the (laughs) radiophonic business, isn't it? Are Are you familiar with The Masked Singer? No. I'm only just familiar with badgers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a show on ITV on a Saturday night, a big light entertainment show, and they have famous people. You don't know their identity. They're wearing huge masks, almost like mascot-style masks, and they sing, and a, a panel of celebrities and the public watching at home are trying to figure out who they are. You know, there are a series of visual cues and, and clues, and then you're really just trying to guess by their, their their singing voice. And I just wondered, because, you know, famously you have posed the question, do I look like a badger? It's something you've agonised about over the years on this podcast. I wondered if, if they'd maybe signed you up. I don't know quite how to answer this question, Jeff, because, you know, I mean, you'll have heard of non-disclosure agreements, which are... <laughs> which, which, which are uh, which, which you know, have some negative purposes, but also are employed in you know popular television. Yes, um, of course, yes, yes. Programs in order to kind of you know avoid spoiling it, and you know, I mean, if I was in the Masked Singer, put it this way, put it, I mean, I put it no higher than this. You know, I would clearly have to abide by any agreements I've made. Now, I don't want to confirm or deny that I'm in the program because that would obviously you know, have significant implications. But I think I have to, you know, if I was, I would have to protect the, you know, the, my my obligations to the, to the programme. Well, I just want to congratulate whoever it might be on a fine version of Aerosmith's I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. I, I didn't know you had it in you. There you go. Now, aside from all that, I've got, I've got, I've got a, a, a brilliant idea to share with you. Mm. And this comes via my son, who is four and a half. And mm. and in recent weeks, he's become, uh, I don't think he'd be able to describe it as this, but he's become very concerned about climate change. Yes. Um, because he, he's really worried about the Arctic animals not having anywhere to live. Oh, good for him. So so he understands that the Earth is, is getting warmer. And when we were talking about the Earth getting warmer and we need to cool it down the other day, he had a brilliant idea. He also knows that you're one of the people trying to fix it because I've told him. And he said, can you tell Ed my idea? So I'm going to tell, tell you his idea now to, to cool the Earth down. He thinks we should blow on it. Good idea. Because that's what we do with his dinner when we need to cool it down. You, we should. I want to be careful how I put this, but we could have a mass blow. Yes, <laughs> we could. You know, it's like uh, on Earth Day. Yeah. Do you think? It, do you think it'd do the trick? Has this been investigated yet? I don't know. I think anything's worth trying. Um, I mean, look. I think it does show. It's inter- isn't it interesting that at the age of four and a half, you can really get into the idea of uh, you know around climate change i think it's very very good it shows how well you're bringing him up if i may say so you and sarah how's uh, how's your week been well actually i do have something to report which is um 
You know those trainers that I talked to you about, those fancy schmancy trainers? Yes. Well, I finally got the right size. I don't know whether you remember the saga, but I got the. I did the box opening on the podcast. I got the wrong size. I exchanged them for a new set of trainers for my birthday. They turned out to be the wrong size. I don't think I said that to you. Uh, so I now then exchanged them again um, for another size. The size finally works. And uh, I mean, they're really, they're really good. I mean, I, the the only unfortunate thing is I haven't. They haven't yet made me go a lot faster, but I think that might be. Because I was taking it easy, I had I had gas left in the tank, as they say. I, I'm very familiar with that sensation of having gas I, in the I tank. Was, I, yeah, I, as I said it, I realised, <laughs> I realised that you thought of it thought of it in a different way. That's enough about <laughs> that's enough about the lentil stew. Um, right? Should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. This week we're asking who should decide what is acceptable online speech. In the last couple of weeks, President Trump has obviously been banned from many of the largest tech platforms, including Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, after his role in inciting the insurrection at the US Congress earlier this month. Many people will think those bans are a right and a good thing, but they also raise important questions about the power of a handful of tech CEOs to shape the public conversation in countries across the world with little, if any, accountability. Politicians, including Angela Merkel, have raised concerns about that power. And Twitter founder Jack Dorsey has himself acknowledged the Trump Twitter ban sets a dangerous precedent. First, we're going to be talking to Yale Eisenstadt, who's worked on national security in the US and also spent six months at Facebook leading their election integrity work. She wants to see reform of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 in the US. That's the law that gives legal immunity to websites for content they host and prevents them being treated as the publisher or speaker of content. She thinks greater regulation is necessary to rein in the power of the tech platforms over the public debate. And we'll be asking her what that could look like in the US. And then we're talking to Professor Lorna Woods. And, and she spent the the past couple of years really, I think, blazing the trail for how tech platforms should be regulated based, believe it or not, on the 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act in the UK. And I think her proposal has been incredibly influential around the world. We'll be asking her about that proposal and how it is shaping policy, not just here, but globally as well. And our cheerful person is comedian Tom Allen. Now, Tom has written a great new memoir called No Shame, which has had Ed in stitches. uh, And we're going to be talking to Tom about that. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is uh, is actually on a social media platform, which uh, I'm not sure is apt or not, given the subject matter of the episode. But it's a new Instagram account, uh, and it's a, a friend of mine called Narina Palo, who people might know as a singer-songwriter. But it's completely separate to that. Her and her husband, some years ago, went to a charity auction, and they bid on and won Alan Wicker's collection of matchboxes that he had acquired and amassed on his travels around the world from you know glamorous hotels and bars and restaurants around the place and i think they've just been sort of sitting in a box for years and she started taking photographs of them and putting them up on Instagram and also trying to find out a little bit about the stories behind the places and also some some kind of personal recollections as well and it's just lovely it's uh, it's a really beautiful thing and it you know especially in these days where you know obviously none of us can really go anywhere it makes you hanker for for travel but also that kind of golden age of travel that alan wicker encapsulated so i, I recommend it it's um it's just called matchbox travels and it's fantastic it's lovely sounds brilliant yeah it's really nice how about you? What's what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is sort of about you, really, which is that you bought me this brilliant um, Nigel Slater cookbook for Christmas and birthday. Um, uh, and you bought me the spring and summer one and the autumn and winter one. Obviously, I'm using the autumn and winter one. And you know how often you buy people Christmas presents, you know, like a sort of make your own vegan I, I, I was set. already just, squirming in just, my chair before you even as, said it just as an example i mean just hypothetical it's hypothetical example well i wanted to sort of reassure you that you know i'm taking this uh really seriously this this present because it's, it's got it's a it's a really lovely book and all of the recipes look great and um so i mean this is like this isn't quite i'm you'll you i mean after this build up it's a bit disappointing but 
I know t- I, what caught my eye was the tahini, sesame, and butternut squash soup. Oh, and drum roll! I've bought the ingredients. Oh, <laughs> what a cliffhanger! What a cliffhanger! Uh, now you'll remember things didn't go so well the last time I made a soup, which was the black bean soup fiasco, um, yes. which led to sort of you know listener comments, you know marital some, discord, well, marital discord. One person confessed that their black bean soup had killed a hedgehog. Um, <laughs> So I'm hoping it's going to go better. But but I wanted to sort of reassure you that your present is being uh, used. And I don't know whether I'll do it this weekend, but but I, you know, well, as I say, I think I sort of think half the battle is buying the ingredients, isn't it? Well, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to give us a report back by this time next week. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're excited to start by talking to Yael Eisenstadt. Uh, not not just because Yael is very vocal and at the forefront of the fight for accountability of social media platforms, but also because you have a puppy just behind you and, and you've pre-warned us that we might hear from him at any given moment. What is his name? What sort of puppy is he? Oh, you'll like this. His name is Brixton named after the neighborhood in London, which I spent much of much ha- many happy days in Brixton in the late 90s. And so I tried to name my little punk rock puppy Brixton. Uh, he's a Havanese five-month-old puppy. Now, as, as I said, I mean, you, it's a, yours is a fascinating story. You're, you, you know, you're really um, out there fighting for accountability social media platforms. You also have a background in national security. You uh, were an advisor to Joe Biden, but also Facebook hired you um, to kind of help bring it onto line on election integrity and political ads, which I'd just like to just to start by asking you about that. I mean, w- were they serious? Were they trying to buy your silence? I mean, what, what, what do you think was going on when Facebook hired you? It's it's the question I still struggle with to this day. Um, I, I I know what happened there, and I know why I took the job. I will never understand why they hired me. And and here's what I mean by that. Um, you know, I had started writing and speaking about uh, the breakdown in civil discourse as what I thought was becoming our biggest threat to our democracy. You know, when I interviewed with them, I was very clear about who I am and very clear about how I would approach a job like this. And I asked them point blank, you know, don't hire me if you don't mean it. I'm here to really try to help fix how this company is affecting democracy. And they told me all the right things and all the things I wanted to hear. And from day two, they silenced me and sidelined me. And I will never to this day understand why they hired me to begin with. When you saw the pictures that we all saw from Washington, D.C. Uh, the other week and then the events that sub- subsequently unfolded, I mean, w- were you looking at something that to some extent you, you thought was an inevitability given the, 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 the work you've done and the study you've done into online content and the lack of regulation? Let's just go to the political moment that we're at right now. You have civil rights leaders, human rights leaders, activists, journalists, academics, advertisers, and even Facebook employees, all telling Mark Zuckerberg, the way that we are allowing hate speech, calls to violence, things like the Trump post about looters and shooters unchecked on our platform is dangerous. And despite all of those parts of communities and legislators, Mark Zuckerberg has basically said, well, I still believe I'm right. He's still, despite all of those parts of society. And to be really clear, it's not about me thinking that Facebook should be the arbiters of truth, because I absolutely don't want Mark Zuckerberg to be the arbiter of truth. But they have a platform that is predicated on keeping us engaged. They're not, their platform is not about protecting democracy. It's about dominating the global public square in order to hoover up as much data as humanly possible in order to perfect a personalization process that they can then sell to advertisers. On top of that, Mark Zuckerberg decides he is going to allow 
politicians to lie, not just in organic posts, but in paid advertising. This is not free speech. You are profiting from this. You combine those things, those two things together. And how can you possibly be surprised about how this turned out? And just in that context, presumably your argument is, okay, banning Trump now is all well and good. But it's it's sort of, you know, way too little too late. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't match the scale of the, in any sense, the scale of the, the wider problem. We shouldn't have even had to get to this point. Like, I am not a big fan of the idea of deplatforming and content moderation being the solutions. I'm much more a fan of the idea of looking at the systemic issues that are leading to this to begin with. And what I mean by that is, yes, at the end of the day, the president of the United States absolutely publicly advocated for his followers to go to the Capitol and engage in insurrection. So, yes, I believe he should be taken down. But again, the bigger issue is why is this platform so ripe for manipulation, for being a cesspool for disinformation, for conspiracy theorists, for hate groups? And that's the larger question I hope the U.S. government and broader parts of society will finally start to truly grapple with instead of what should we take down? What should we leave up? Because something has to change. And, and it's the get out for Mark Zuckerberg and, and social media generally that the the existing legislation, which is Section 230, it's, it's, it's about the idea that they are a platform and not a publisher. So, he, he, you know, they're not an editor, they're not a publisher. It, it, in s- some sense, they, they consider themselves the the paper that the newspaper is printed on rather than anything that's actually in, in the newspaper. T- tell us about that legislation and, and, its, and its limits. Yes, I think this is one of the core issues at hand. I know that, you know, a lot of people in the tech policy community will argue about what's more important. Is breaking companies up more important? Is amending Section 230 more important? I think it's all important. In my opinion, when there is no accountability for the harms you create in the world, then there's no incentive to make sure you don't do it again, right? There's there's just Facebook and Twitter and companies like that have benefited from day one from a legislative environment that tells them they are 100% free of any responsibility for content on their platform, other than, okay, let's not over-exaggerate, of course, things that are truly illegal. Like, for example, intellectual property laws still apply to Facebook. And guess what? They're pretty good at making sure they don't violate those laws. So they are capable of actually abiding by laws. But because of Section 230, which is really the publisher versus platform argument, right? It says, there there are two parts of it, but I want to focus on the first part of Section 230, the part that says you are not liable for the content on your platform. And here's why I think that's so dangerous. If there's a truly neutral platform where you are using that software to build a website and then you do something terrible on your website, I think you should be responsible, not the software company. Sure. If two people plan a crime over the phone, I don't think AT&T or Verizon or British Telecom, whatever the British Telecom is, are the ones who should be responsible for that. But this legislation was written in 1996, before we could even envision a company like Facebook. And what I want to see change is I don't think they're a publisher or a platform. I don't want them regulated like the New York Times because I don't want Mark Zuckerberg to have to be the arbiter of truth. I don't want him responsible for editing content. At the same time, this is not just a neutral platform. This is not just pipes where speech flows through. Their algorithms decide how they're going to curate the content. Their recommendation engines decide where to steer you towards, what groups to push you towards, who to recommend you connect with. And their targeting tools are given to operatives who want to use advertising to either cut people out of a message or target certain vulnerable communities. And until we recognize that there is that, these tools make them much more than a neutral platform. I think we need an entirely new category, some sort of a digital curator category, and you have to meet a certain threshold, and then that's how you're classified. Let's just look at the Capitol example from last week. 
so you have, for example, as soon as the woman who you all might remember the images of a woman going through the window into the Capitol and then being shot and killed by Capitol Police. Now, as soon as I found out her name, I did a deep dive into her Twitter feed. She's a veteran. She served multiple tours. She comes back home. She goes into civilian life. She becomes somewhat disillusioned. She struggles with adjusting. All of that is actually somewhat normal when you leave service and try to struggle to. It's also exactly what makes you vulnerable to people who want to exploit those emotional biases, right? And so what I would love to know is what is the point where she went from disillusioned, a little bit lost, maybe angry, to full-blown conspiracy theorist who is willing to engage in an active insurrection? And here is where Section 230, in my mind, plays into this question. We will be able to say that this woman stormed the Capitol. We'll never really know. You know, Facebook's not responsible for the fact that she ended up storming the Capitol. Okay, I agree with that. But what I want to know is, what, how did she get sucked into the conspiracy theorist? Did she go looking for it? Because like Nick Clegg loves to say it's just a mirror to society, right? It's just showing you what you were looking for. Or did your recommendation engines and your recommendation algorithms actually steer her in that direction? Did you actually recommend to her a QAnon site at some point when she was scrolling for something else? Did you actually connect her and say, oh, here's somebody you might want to know? And was that a QAnon supporter? Did you, these are the things that we will never be able to find out because they will say we don't bear responsibility for that. And so to say that they have no responsibility in any of this can't be true when your own algorithms, recommendation engines, and most importantly, targeting tools are all used to specifically pull people in certain directions. In Europe, there is legislation in the works. In the UK, there is legislation in the works. And Joe Biden has indicated support for reform. Would you paint us a picture of, if you had your way, what would be different about the kind of, the kind of regime that would be in place? Honestly, it's all about transparency. Right now, everything there is done in a black box. But I think transparency is key. So some sort of oversight body, whether it's a government regulatory agency, whether it's some sort of civil, you know, civil society oversight body who has the right to be able to look at that kind of forensic evidence of what do the recommendation engines do? Does that mean that they become responsible? They, the, uh, be, you know, digital curators, as you call them, become responsible if there is sort of consequential harms? In my opinion, yes, they would be. Now, again, I don't have all the answers of exactly how you define that. The U.S. government would have to decide what that means that they're responsible. But if your company knowingly allowed, you know, aided and abetted a crime, then yes, you should be held accountable. And if your company, for example, uh, if any of the people who were advocating insurrection openly, openly saying things like, hang Mike Pence or some of the things that they were saying. And your algorithms on Twitter or on Facebook amplified that post beyond him just posting it and amplified it to millions of people artificially beyond what he naturally would have gotten as his own audience. Yes, I think there's an accountability built in. But I also believe if we had oversight into some of the ways the recommendation engines were working, it would incentivize the platforms to clean up their recommendation engines. And I know that sounds overly simplistic, but I, I it's right now we're in an operating environment of nothing. Everything's too hard, so we're going to do nothing and it's a free for all and there's no accountability. And that's just one thing that I personally can't accept. Well, look, Yale Eisenstadt, you've really um brought it home very clearly. We're really grateful to you for joining us and also a special thank you to Brixton. <laughs> well, I'm glad he didn't bark. <laughs> so to follow up that conversation and and maybe to talk about what might happen here and indeed around the world i'm delighted to say that we're joined by lorna woods who's professor of internet law at the university of essex and as we said in the introduction very much a trailblazing thinker uh, on these issues let's just start with a basic question can you tell us what's the story of how you got working on the harms associated with social media um well i i have a long background uh in telecommunications and broadcasting regulation. 
And I was talking to uh, Will Perrin, uh, a trustee at Carnegie UK Trust, shortly after the government's um, Internet Safety Green Paper, which was long gone identifying some of the, the issues and difficulties in this area, but quite short on solutions. And we thought, how difficult can it actually be? The idea was that actually talking about social media in particular as publishers and focusing on content didn't help and that they were more like places, like shops, like high streets, like parks and pubs and that we regulated for the safety of those sorts of spaces without micromanaging the behaviours in those places. So we took that as a, a model to say that the systems, the architecture of uh, the various services should be regulated for safety, that they should look at the harms that they could cause. So this is a step away from content regulation and looking at the system, the architecture. It's health and safety on the internet, looking for, I don't know, fire extinguishers and, and, and lighting. And so what would it mean for them to have what is called a statutory duty of care, which I believe was part of the Health and Safety at Work Act of 1974, which was your unlikely source of inspiration? Companies would be required to do... Um, a risk assessment of their service and its various features to assess whether any of it was particularly risky. But it was also the idea that you would be looking at the environment and seeing what the consequences would be. So, for example, if you see a floorboard sticking up, you're going to think that somebody could trip over it and, and hurt themselves in some way, but you're not so much worried about um, how badly they're hurting themselves. You're just identifying that risk. And I suppose there's a key point here, isn't it, which is that the state doesn't regulate the floorboard. It regulates the consequences of the, you know, venue not looking after its floorboards. Well, that's right. You know, it is about the process. It is not about regulating the content, which is the floorboard in this instance. What's very striking about your paper is that, we'll come to this later, but you don't just say um, that companies should be regulated for the sort of potential consequences for things like child sexual abuse or terrorist activity, um, but also m broader issues like the impact on democracy and justice, economic harms. The breadth of the possible harms that can be tackled uh, by this regime are possible because the factors that might lead to undesirable consequences don't just lead to um, one sort of harm. When we look at, um, say, recommender algorithms, they don't just bring up, uh, say, child abuse material. They bring up fake news. They bring up extremist um, material. So it is not as if um, one particular tool or feature of the platform has um, a single consequence. And talk to us about why you think this is better than treating platforms as publishers and how it would differ from something like the German approach, the so-called Network Enforcement Act, which basically says that hate speech must be taken down within... Um, 24 hours, I believe, otherwise the internet companies will be subject to massive fines. There is such a phenomenal amount of content being posted um, 
every day, every minute, every second, that I think if you were to try to look for a uh, regime that sought to check every single item of content, that um, that's just doomed to failure, that, that, that it is beyond practicality in real terms. Also, looking at content means you don't recognise the role, whether it's um, inadvertent or not, of the system design and the business model in encouraging certain forms of content. And finally, although the platforms, I do believe, have an impact in encouraging certain uh, types of behaviour, certain types of speech, they're not responsible in the same way that a publisher who takes editorial responsibility for content is. Can you talk to us about the government's online harms bill, which I think started life under Theresa May's government back in 2019? How much does it incorporate your approach and you know what's your assessment of it i think it seems to be adopting um at least to some extent a systems-based approach so that they are talking about safety by design for example uh so in in that sense i think i'm i'm cautiously hopeful I think one difference is scope. It is is much uh, narrower in terms of the harms it is uh, envisaging. It is um, looking at individual harms. And as far as adults are concerned, it seems that it is only concerned about content or behaviours that might constitute a criminal offence. So, there is a difference there. How easy is it to deal with the worldwide aspect of this? How much can can one uh, government's reg- regulation and legislation really do? I, I suppose there's two elements uh, to an answer. The first one is if you just look at the regulation in the UK and the extent to which um, the rules are designed to apply to services coming into the UK and to say that whoever regulates and the government said it's going to be Ofcom has authority to try and tackle those operators. You are then faced with the question of how to make those uh, sorts of rules effective to companies that are based elsewhere. It is obviously um, sensible if a common approach uh, can be adopted internationally, even if it is implemented by individual states uh, differently, if we could at least just get an agreement on a a systems-based approach and some common understanding of um, the risks from some of the, the, the tools and the business models, then I think that would be a huge step forward. We have a uh, sort of imaginary world on the podcast, uh, Lorna, called the, um, you have to suspend disbelief a little bit here, <laughs> called the Jeffocracy. I'm going to ask you what you would, if you can paint a picture under the Jeffocracy of the way your system of, of preventing harm would work. If you take Facebook, for example, or Twitter, How do you think it would be different in the way they operated and the harms they did? A few years ago, I think 2017, I I saw an interview um, with Sean Parker, one of the um, founders of Facebook. And I'm going to paraphrase loosely uh, what he said, but he accepted that when Facebook developed the like button, that they were aware that there might be some adverse consequences from it uh, in terms of, uh, I suppose, dopamine hits, how people would would respond to that. But 
rather than pursuing that and thinking whether it was a good idea to go ahead at all or whether they could put any mitigating measures in, they just went, oh, well, never mind, let's do it anyway. And I suppose the big change would be that let's do it anyway, that a company would have to think about consequences and put more things into the balance than just its bottom line. Perhaps and that would have change. implications. And that would have implications for, say, their algorithms, which Yale was talking to us about, the way they pushed people towards content. All of that would suddenly would suddenly come into play if you were thinking about harms. Um, yes, in the Jeffocracy, it, it, it would. This gives massive latitude, doesn't it, to the regulator to judge the harms. I mean, I, I was thinking in preparation for this um, interview that, you know, if a Ferris wheel, and forgive me if this is a bit simplistic, but if a Ferris wheel is going to, you know, have a crash, you know, it's kind of, you know, whether it's knowable, well, okay, there's a judgment you've got to make about that, but it's a, you know, a preventable harm if it's not safe and so on. There's a lot of latitude here, isn't there, for a regulator? Um, yes, but um, I, I think that is why it is important that some thought does go to the sorts of harms um, that are going to be the, the, the subject of the uh, regulator's role. Last question. One of the things that led us to this conversation um, with you and Yale was the, I think both Jeff and I found quite striking that two men, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, could have such an outsized influence on whether the President of the United States has a platform or not. How should we think about this question of, of who makes those decisions? One, I think there is maybe a, a, a role for regulation here, that at the least operators of these platforms should not discriminate in how they allow people access and in how they apply their terms and conditions to them. But I think also we need to say or recognise that not all platforms are the same. It's one thing if we are looking at um, the big platforms, uh, which are, I don't know, the high street of, of the digital environment. We might say that there are uh, one set of norms that we might expect there, but that we mightn't want to expect that across the board when we're talking uh, smaller platforms and particularly those that have got a, a specific motivation. Well, look, Lorna Woods, you've made some very complex uh, questions very clear. Um, you clearly deserve your reputation as a pioneer in this area and we look forward to being able to call on you uh, in the case of the Jeffocracy um, coming to pass. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Well, what did you think? I would say this is a difficult subject. It is difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's been no doubt in my mind for a long time that you know, social media companies aren't platforms. Um, I, I really you know, enjoyed Yale laying it out the, the way that their algorithms, the role in pushing people towards content and, and extremism, um, you know, disavows anybody really of, of that idea. Um, and I, I enjoyed hearing Lorna's idea. I think there's definitely something really interesting in the duty of care that a company has not to harm people in the public space analogy is a good one or semi-public space um I, I do slightly worry about how those harms are defined and how in open to interpretation they are and what possibly implications that could have on free speech that's not something we really touched on but i mean i, I do think we mentioned ofcom and, and it would be ofcom who'd be looking after this yeah, we, we've done a good job, I think, in this country of looking after the airwaves. Um, 
and there's there's got to be some parallel there uh also as i said I, I i don't know how much difference regulation in one country apart from the states does make although you know the the eu gdpr stuff uh really made a difference um and i was quite struck by what yale says that facebook are really good at taking down content if it infringes copyright because they know they're going to be hit in the pocket by that so if they can do it with copyright infringement they could do it with other types of content it feels like lorna's way forward notwithstanding that the issues you raise about it um it feels like that is where the direction of travel is i got a a a little bit of it from what yale was saying it's 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 somewhat what is happening in this country as well and i suppose I suppose reading between the lines or, or, or listening to some of what Lorna said, what's the answer to the um, question about Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and their power? I think part of the answer is that if they allow somebody like Trump to, you know, incite a riot or whatever on their platform, they'd be failing in their duty of care. So. I mean, obviously, it's got massive implications. I think I think one thing that is clear, though, is that, you know, the status quo isn't working. And I think change is in the air. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As ever, we'd love to hear from you, uh, your thoughts on this week's episode, you know, some very interesting ideas on this issue. Um, but it's it's going to be something, I think, that will dominate the, the coming years and, and certainly rumble on. So if you've got ideas, if you've read stuff uh, that we've missed out on, do uh, feel free to share your thoughts, share what you've seen. You can find us online at cheerfulpodcast.com. Email us through the website. Also, if you've got ideas for future episodes, um, thoughts on anything we talk about or, or what we don't we'd love to hear from you um reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com is the email address and you can find uh, all the social media channels and email us through the website this one is about the flexible working episode from last week it comes from jillian uh, who says i'm one of these people who is often starting a sentence with i was listening to reasons to be cheerful the other day and dot 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 which is good to hear isn't it definitely yeah more of that please Uh, She says, thanks so much for your most recent episode on flexible work. I've been patiently waiting for this episode and it didn't disappoint. She's been waiting 173 episodes. And and here it is. Which is a bit too long, actually, we confess, don't we? Let's hear what Gillian has to say. Yes, let's hear it. A subject very close to my heart. I'm a social entrepreneur and specialise in building flexible workplaces in New Zealand. I wanted to build on the point you made about flexible work being an issue related to workplaces having been set up way back when men went out to do the paid work and women stayed at home to do all the unpaid domestic work. This structural sexism is locked into our workplaces and then further reinforced by our school systems. The typical eight-hour workday versus the six-hour school day means that working parents are left with a daily conundrum to solve every day. 
often plastered over by a mixture of childcare and flexible work. In both our countries, we seem stubbornly blind to addressing this mismatch as the structural issue it is. The same problem occurs in the mismatch between four weeks annual leave versus the 12 weeks of school holidays. As is often the case, it's the families with the most resources that are able to resolve this structural mismatch, while the families with the least are plunged into impossible choices with consequences such as holiday poverty. Putting flexible work, schooling and childcare in this context, I think, is really important. I'd love an episode, and, and we can we can try and uh, absolve ourselves here, Ed, by trying to do this with some speed. She says, I'd love an episode on what the future of schooling could look like if we Ooh, were to move away from the rigidity of fixed times and holidays, etc. What could the opportunities be for preparing kids for a future of work that's flexible with a much more flexible approach to education and schooling? That's, I, that's really interesting. I haven't heard anything about that. This one on the same subject comes from Hannah Jackson, uh, and she says this, Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm a civil servant where flexible working is more normalised. What I've seen is that a lot of men also work part-time if the culture allows. More woman-friendly environments, in inverted commas, lead to better environments for everyone. It's completely right. Due to cramped offices, my partner, who works in the same office, and I have been working compressed hours, nine-day fortnights. Working longer days was initially difficult to adjust to, but now it's fine, and we really look forward to our days off. My partner also works 7.30am to 4pm, which works a lot better uh, for them too. Not only that, working from home has helped them manage their social anxiety better. I recently got a promotion and was able to go four days a week. I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do so. But I wonder why more people who are able to to do it don't. I assume it's a work culture thing needing to be seen around. Possibly they also worry about their chances of rising through the corporate ladder. People have been asking me why I've reduced my working hours. I feel like the answer to me is is simple. I'm in the incredibly lucky, lucky position not to need the extra money, so why not? If you are in a position like me, I would highly recommend it. I agree with your guests that most jobs should offer flexible working by default. A lot of women who continue to work part-time say that despite their children being grown and not needing to work part-time, they love having the extra day or two to themselves. This inclusive approach to work should be expanded nationwide. Thanks both for your excellent work on these podcasts. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And our cheerful person this week has a fantastic memoir out. It's called No Shame. It's Tom Allen. Hello. Jeff, what a very kind introduction and quite correct. Tom, it is impossible to avoid you at, at the moment. You're on everything. I've made it impossible. And uh, it's all part of my grand plan to it's unbelievable. inflict myself on people. W- was there I... a point at which you realised, <laughs> oh, I'm on everything now? Um, well, I've, I mean, it took me sort of 30, I've been going about 16 years now since I did my first gig as a stand-up. And it took me about 13 years before I started getting any sort of television stuff, I'd say. So, um, and so I've always been very grateful to do things. And, and, and if people have invited me to do them, I've always been like, yes, I'd love to do that. So, I mean, um, I suppose it's, it, it feels very nice to get to do so many fun things. And, and I've got to meet so many people that I always dreamed of meeting. And, um, and, and Like and- Jeff. I've said this to Jeff before, but uh, as as a uh, as a kid going to school, I'd lo- often listen to um, Virgin Radio in the morning. As it, as it was. and um, and Chris Evans was so good. No. And um, no, <laughs> joke. And uh, Pete and Jeff were on and uh, were 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 there, and um, that was such a because that was funny. Like it was funny and witty and sort of sarcastic, and I like that. And Tom, I absolutely loved your um, book. Uh, just I was and I. I, I just was la- I mean, la- laughing out loud. Um, but I was about to say, were you listening to, to Jeff on Absolute Radio dressed as a butler? Around about that time, I think I was trying to work out who I was and would take too often dressing in either Victorian clothing, but I had this fantasy that I wanted to be a butler, like a bit like Anthony Hopkins in Remains of the Day, which is an unusual aspiration, I think, for a sort of 15-year-old in um, in the Bromley. suburbs of London, in Bromley. Yeah. Tom, talk about the sort of context of the book, because it's called No Shame, and talk a little bit about the title. And I mean, I suppose my observation about the book is, well, you, you talk about the title and then, and then let's talk oh, about the book. Well, I suppose I, I realised that I've we all have a sense of shame, I think, about us. And it feels very pernicious in our age of social media and shaming people and, and kind of pointing fingers. We, human beings seem to love to do that. And I, I realised that 
the stories I felt had been most pivotal to me and, and the facts of my life had, had sort of always had this kind of sense of shame attached. Um, so uh, it, it, a lot of the time it is attached to, for me, realising I was gay, but also people often talk about the sort of the coming out side of the book, but to be honest, the things the, the thing is it's about sort of accepting that I've, I'm an eccentric or I'm different. I'm an, I feel like an outsider. And whilst I think being gay is a part of that, it, it's not, it's not everything. And, and actually one of the things I found really interesting when writing the book was, was about class. And cause I, I have this posh voice, but it's not, attached to it's not from my family aren't posh at all my i said to ed the first time i met you you (laughs) you know dressed impeccably as you always are and i thought this guy is great but he must be from landed gentry i thought you must be sort of borderline aristocracy that was always the illusion i've tried to create but in truth my dad is well was retired now but it was a coach driver in sydenham and um, my mum worked in the army and navy in Bromley, and they both grew up in Penge and um, and uh, Sydenham, and or actually Annerley, not Penge. My dad would like to say so. Very kind of um, well, I, I, I guess sort of normal working class, traditional sort of traditional. What does that mean? But like sort of suburban working class family. Particularly my dad when he was growing up came from a background where he got basically in one room with his mum because his dad had left them, and uh, and and that sense of kind of not that he was ashamed of that, but just the feelings around that of having no money um, actually don't go away overnight and stick with you. And those sort of senses of don't stick out and don't, um, don't make a show of yourself and don't kind of, you, you know, try and blend in because that's, I guess, traditionally, that's sort of what people, that's, that's all people have is that sense of blending in. And that's what's so fascinating about your book, because what's so striking is your, your sort of determination to pursue your own individuality from a very early age at secondary school, where most of us are desperately trying to fit in. And you'd come across, I'm not just saying this, as a quite remarkable person in the sense of your own sort of kind of determination, actually. Oh, um, well, firstly, I wouldn't mind if you were just saying it, because I, I really like compliments. <laughs> but um, I, um, I, I, I think there was this sense I always had that, oh, I could try and hide this. I could try and um, be different, uh, to how I feel, um, I could try and blend in, but I, I don't know what it was. This kind of very, I want to say, belligerent—is that the right word? Or just sort of, a, 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 a sort of determined sense of like, well, like bollocks to the rest of you. Like if that's how you're going to be. Like I could, I think I felt so kind of jarred by kind of trying to fit in, and I did try and do that for the first couple of years at secondary school. But that's, and you get and then, sort of drop kicked in the head by the school bully. Well, yeah, this guy—he was. I mean, there were, yeah. Well, he was—he was a. He was, uh, um, just this boy really in the year above me who was just just with his mates and it, I didn't know him and he wasn't a particularly standout character or a particularly standout bully but it was just he had this moment where he beat me up and to that point I thought I'd been blending in and um and then if, and I thought I had been masking the fact that I was gay and I was different and I thought I was doing going to all this trouble and in truth <laughs> just you can't help it and I think that's what I realized as well and I think there was a sense of of it wasn't quite as perhaps as linear as as this, but there was a sense of like, well, if if this is going to happen, then I I may as well just carry on being myself, and I may as well just carry on doing what I'm doing. And um, it, it it's just that I suppose I, 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 the most the most pained I've ever felt, or the most kind of yeah in, in, emotionally switched on I've ever felt are those times when you've just stepped out and gone, hey, I'm feeling like a person, and I'm feeling cool, and I'm feeling engaged with who I am, and I want to be part of the world. And then somebody slams you down, and in that instance, it was they literally kicked me against a wall and it made me feel so ashamed and so embarrassed and I could never talk about it because this was a time when section 28 was still around so you couldn't really and and so being gay was not acceptable at all and 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 feeling you know just it, just it was it, you know I couldn't tell anybody that I'd been that I'd been beaten up because they would say well why did they beat you up what did they say and I was like well they said I was gay well are you and then it would be like no no I can't talk about that so it was a very complex time and, and I think it just somehow strangulatedly came out as me um, in that particular chapter, dressing up to do a Julie Walters monologue, which of course... Yeah, go on, talk a little bit about that, Tom, because it's quite an amazing scene. Well, well, I mean, I just, there was, we were doing a school cabaret and I decided I needed, I just loved Alan Bennett. Um, and I had um, a, a teacher of mine had just shown me some Alan Bennett and I'd, I just read this monologue and I just didn't realise that you could, that there were writers who wrote about the way normal people spoke. And, who, and I was like, oh my God, this is just how like my mum's friends talk. And so uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I was just like, well, Julie, Wal- I love Julie Waters because I already loved Victoria Wood because that was something me and my mum always watched. And so um, I decided I have to do this Julie Waters monologue called Her Big Chance, which is about um, a deluded actress that she plays who um, gets her first big 
chance she thinks it is in, in a feature film, but she doesn't realise it's a porn film. And um, but she's so deluded, she thinks <laughs> it's this big Hollywood film. And so it's totally inappropriate for like a 12, 13 year old boy <laughs> in a suburban comprehensive school cabaret to do. But I was like, no, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is, I have to do it. I just wanted to do it. And I didn't know why. So, and, and when I wrote that story down, the, my editor was like, and then afterwards was everything, you know, the bully, you stood up to the bullies and did the bullies come up, to, did the bullies leave you alone? Do they respect you? And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I felt it was very important to represent that as human beings, we do odd things, seemingly odd things all the time. And it doesn't cure everything. It doesn't One incident doesn't sort out all your problems. Can you talk about your luncheon that you organise with your friends and your RE teacher? <laughs> well, I realise as you described that, I mean, all of these things are just so weird. <laughs> like All these things I did were just so odd. I think it meant I had to write a book to try and explain it because you couldn't just like casually say to somebody in conversation, oh, once I did, I, I, I really fancied this this boy in my year. And I didn't know how to tell him and I had no way to express it. Anyway, I knew I wouldn't be able to express it. But somehow, again, in my like strangulated thinking, I was like, yes. But if I throw an elaborate lunch party during the summer holidays, then uh, A, I will get to spend time with him if he if he deigns to come along. And B, I will impress him so much he'll fall in love with me. Like, what Hollywood film was I basing that on? Like, not, like nothing. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. But I was like, this is what I have to do. And then I got obsessed, because I was sort of obsessed anyway with like, etiquette manuals, because I love the idea of, like, table settings and everything being quite... I loved formality, basically. This is, I think, why I wanted to be a butler. Because I think, I think because in my world, I had no... It was like a sense of structure, which I loved the idea of but also it was a sense of structure that other people didn't know about so it was like my sense of structure of kind of like fish knives and um and and sort of the correct way to serve lunch or call it luncheon because lunch is a is an abbreviation and um and so i started getting out all these etiquette manuals from the from the library my mum and dad were like oh what did you got now another bleeding etiquette manual oh god what what oh oh yeah that's all we need isn't it oh yeah and I'd lay the table in these kind of very formal ways. And then, of course, my mum and dad would just move it all. I'd be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, oh, we can't even, oh, where am I supposed to get my You sound like a brilliant, you sound like a brilliant cook at the age of 15. <laughs> well, I loved cooking. Yeah, I love cooking, actually. Yeah, I think I love food technology. Anyway, you have the lunch. Go on, talk, talk, I've, I've spoiled well, the end no, of the story. No, no, not you, at you, all. I, you I, have I, the lunch. And you do not walk body. off into the sunset with the boy. And I, and I, yeah, so I was like desperate um to to invite him around so he came round and i ended up inviting an re teacher uh who very kindly came as well who i'd run into while i was buying some fish knives at the army and navy so they all came round including a, a, one of my friends from from my year who i was he was my one of my close friends because she was sort of flamboyant as well we had the lunch uh, none of them understood any of the rules of etiquette because they hadn't been spending their summer holidays reading etiquette manuals from Bromley Central Library. And then it all, it all went wrong. Then my friend told me that she was actually going out with the guy I was obsessed with. And then our two dogs uh, mounted each other and tra- started trying to have sex in the, in the, <laughs> on the lounge carpet. It was terrible. In, in your mission to, to sort of be broadcast on all channels at all time, like some kind of supreme leader, yes. uh, you were, of course, uh, you, you've been on Bake Off Extra Slice for ages now. But yeah. over Christmas, uh, when Noel Fielding uh, was on paternity, you hosted uh, a, a main Bake Off episode. Now, these are sh- also shown in the States, and it has a cult following in the States. I've always thought with you, if Americans saw you, and I speak with some experience, you know, with my wife's reaction to you, they would just go nuts for you. Oh. What has the reaction been from Americans seeing you for the first time? Um, it hasn't gone out in America, so I don't know, but I'll let you know. Oh, it's going to be like Beatlemania, I'm telling you the world is ready for some Tom Allen-shaped fun. Thanks so much for, for coming on and talking to us. The, the book is fantastic. It's brilliant stories. You're such a great storyteller, and it's, it's a thrill to see how things are going for you at the minute as well, Tom. Well, I very much appreciate this. Very Well, thank you for having me on, on your lovely podcast. We want to be part of Tom Mania. Thanks so much, Tom. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're, we're in the outro. In the outro again. Here we are again. Oh, can I just boast about something? I don't know. Can you boast about something? Boom, boom. I had a real homeschooling success yeah. this week. Yeah. So my son was asked to collect mm. circular objects from around the house and then arrange them in order of size and then draw circles around them. I edited together a video of him having done this guess what music i set it to um take on me the theme tune from the sitcom ever decreasing circles what is this the what just give us a bar of it was it? just a bit it's, it's a piano it's a piece of piano music classical piano music and do you not remember that sitcom with richard Bryars? Mm, i think it was sort of 
uh, when was it on? I've got it pegged as late 80s, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I think I'd stop watching telly by then. Uh, I thought you would be, you of all people would be more familiar with Richard Bryars. Well, look, um, that's impressive. You're impressive. Gene's impressive. Mm. Uh, right. I'd like to thank our guests, Yale Eisenstadt and Lorna Woods. And thanks to the brilliant Tom Allen, who's uh, just a joy to talk to. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the deep reading and research is done by Joel Pierce with backup from Zoe Gelber and Fanula DC. Uh, thanks to Joe Kenyon and also to all our friends at Left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And that artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been the masked badger. He's been the secret videographer. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 